today on Radical Personal Finance, it's the man, the myth, the legend who lives in his mother's basement, Joe Saul C. Hi. <laughs> I don't know what to say about the uh, the Friday intro. It just came to me all of a sudden. It's Friday, everybody. I don't know what's the deal with the maniacal laugh at the moment. But welcome to Radical Personal Finance. My name is Joshua Sheets. And today, I have an interview with uh, my friend Joe Saul Seahy from Stacking Benjamins. He calls his show the background noise of financial podcasting. I don't know if that's quite accurate or not, but he certainly tries to not say anything of value. Today... We'll see if he breaks his rule and actually shares with you something that's worth hearing. For those of you who don't know Joe or don't know the Stacking Benjamins show, <laughs> that's really not an insult. You'll hear in this interview today, you'll actually hear Joe refer to uh, his show as the background noise of financial podcasting. That <laughs> They don't actually want you to learn something. He jokes with me. He says, radical personal finance and Stacking Benjamins were like polar opposites, but somehow he has a much bigger audience than I do. So I don't know what I'm doing wrong in this whole deal, but, uh, but it seems to be working for him. Uh, welcome to the show, everybody. Today is Friday. This interview is an interview I recorded a couple weeks ago at Podcast movement 2015 as i mentioned on yesterday's show so uh this is going to be interview central around here so if you don't like interviews check back uh, around the first of october and we'll, we should be back to some of the more uh, normal schedule if i can get my things uh in in line and be prepared for that uh so i hope to be back uh, with the normal schedule of me doing a lot of shows and actually teaching something uh but for now these are a bunch of interviews and today i think you're going to enjoy this interview with joe saul Seahy. he is a former financial advisor with ameriprise financial had a a career for almost a decade and a half. I can't remember if it was 13 or 15 years. And then uh, retired from that career and became a financial commentator. And I love to bring you this show because one of my purposes and missions with Radical Personal Finance is to pull back some of the curtains from uh, the financial advice world. And unfortunately, practicing financial advisors can't speak much uh, because, uh, about the actual world of financial advice because they're stuck behind uh, large, giant corporations with massive teams of attorneys, and everything that they have to say is going to be sanitized and scripted and uh, basically boring and corporate. Uh, but once guys like Joe and me get out from behind the curtain, well, we're a fair game. <laughs> so sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Joe Saul Seahy from Stacking Benjamins. Joe, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. I appreciate you being with me. Dude, I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> After Am what? I really on Radical Personal you Finance? You are really on Radical Personal Finance. Of course, I haven't committed to you. I'm going to play the episode. So maybe this whole <laughs> thing, you better do a good job, or maybe this whole thing oh, goes the into pressure, the can. the pressure, the <laughs> pressure. Kick it off. Uh, anybody who listens uh, to your show obviously might have uh, some idea about you, but kick it off with talking a little bit about your history as it relates to uh, financial advice, and then how ultimately that led into your hosting a financial podcast. I was a financial advisor for 16 years. And by the way, thanks for having me on. Uh, and <laughs> You're still on trial. You better do a good job. <laughs> so, and, and, and what's funny is, and I know we might talk about this later, I was not a guy who knew anything about personal finance, and yet I got hired into that industry. Shocking. Not, not, yeah, right. <laughs> not only did I get hired... Within two years of being in the industry, I was talking to big rooms of people because I had been a public speaker. 
And what was funny was when I got hired to do that job, I was told, we'll teach you everything you need to say. We just need somebody who's not afraid to talk to big groups. And if you think about how scared you should be by that <laughs> statement. What was your public speaking experience? Uh, I had been a disc jockey in high school and in college. Okay. So my brother and I, when, when I was in high school, we decided to do weddings. And so we did wedding receptions and fraternity parties. And Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together hey. for the bride and groom. <laughs> you know what I told them? I told them when, they, when, when uh, they asked me, this company asked me if I would be a guy that would give speeches. I said, as long as I don't have to lead the chicken dance, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy. That, so I actually did one, one of my random jobs. I, for a long time, assisted a wedding DJ. And I was his uh, assistant to help set up the gear and take down the gear. And I ran the light board. And a couple times I did the mic. I was scared stiff to do the mic. But I could, he was very good at the cheesy. He wasn't cheesy. He was, a, hey. he was actually a radio DJ. But he was very good at it. But I was so scared of doing the mic. So one time I had to do the, uh, what's the dance, the garter thing. And I couldn't remember how to do it. Like, you know, the whole, the whole thing that the DJ will do of, of egging the crowd on and setting everything up and, you know, getting it going and, and, and all of the lewd stuff about getting a little higher. And yeah. I screwed the whole thing up royally and I never did the garter again. <laughs> did you play that Joe Cocker song? We'd always play the, you can take your hat off or whatever, the get naked kind of song. I, we or played, did you do the garter? The wait, it was the uh, it was the uh, the 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 brothel music, the yes. one that's like the standard. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so absurd. And what's what's just so horrible though is after you go to wedding after wedding after wedding, the the theme of U.S. American weddings is so predictable. It's the same script every single time, and um, it was a fun job for a while, but. Uh, but so I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, so I did that. And, um, but, but I had an engineer personality. I didn't know. I grew up in a really little town. I didn't know what an engineer was. I mm -hmm. thought it was the guy that drove the train. Right. right? And, uh, my son is actually in engineering at the university of Texas right now. And, um, so, so I wanted to know everything. I loved financial advisors. I loved the people on TV that had all the tips of little things that we didn't know right. about controlling your utility bill or coupon cutting or all the little things. And so I would, I, I learned on my own. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned a ton on my own and I got as much education as I could. And before I knew it, 16 years ago, I was made, I was managing $65 million. That's great. I had a nice size practice, not huge, but not small. Right. Yeah. Right? I had a decent practice. I was one of 12 people in America who were speaking on behalf of the firm I was with then, which was Ameriprise Financial. Mm -hmm. And when I say speaking on behalf of the firm, I wasn't an Ameriprise employee. Mm -hmm. I was one of 12 people who had gone through media training, and I had the stamp that I could speak first and go through compliance later. Ah, the elusive yes. stamp. You were the trustworthy one. I was. <laughs> I was the guy that would say nothing substantial <laughs> during the <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first time I <laughs> I remember the first time I applied to do do something and I was and I was okay I got to do this and I found out the rules and the rules in the financial business are you have to create the script then you have to submit the script for approval then once the attorneys go through the script and they edit the script then they send you back the script then you can go and deliver the script make sure that there's a recording of the script. Then you go ahead and submit the recording back to the home office for, for management because in, in the financial business, everything has to be retained. So it has to be retained. It is just nuts. Do you know what makes me angry about that? What? Is that there are really good people. There are fantastic people that I work with who just, that system is so nuts. I hate it. They, they, they won't go on Twitter 
Yep. They won't go on Facebook. Yep. They there are responsible, great people with money that will say nothing. And you have, we'll call them idiots, <laughs> who, who know absolutely nothing about money, yeah. who speak freely all the time. Yeah. And you get these wingnut philosophies out there. And, um, and it's really sad because I feel like even though we're trying to protect people and I get it, it, it holds back some of the best minds in money management. Why do you think we have radical personal finance? That's, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> that it. That ticked me off for a long time. And I said, there's no way I'm going through that with the, with the script process. And that's the problem, though. Anything edgy. So what happens in the financial services business is because everything has to get run through a team of attorneys and their number one priority and duty is to protect the company. And that's probably as it should be. If I am the yep. CEO of XYZ large company, my fiduciary responsibility is to protect the interests of my stockholders, totally which it. is to protect my company. And that's as it should be. But their number one priority is to protect the company. And so what you wind up with is you wind up with whitewashed, boring, blase financial crap. That's basically five tips and then six tips and three tips, and it's just recycled through again and again and again, and it sucks. And so then what happens is you have people that have a little bit of an, of an edgy message, something interesting, and they amass this whole following because they're actually interesting to listen to. But realistically, although they're interesting to listen to, they're not that smart and they're kind of have a lot of holes in their thinking right. but none of the people who actually know something can go out and do something about it and thus welcome to the world of financial media so frustrating yeah so frustrating so, so then you retired 65 million you sold your practice at well here's what happened what happened was was i had a mentor a guy that was actually five years younger than me who uh was fa just a fantastic guy and one day he wrote a letter to all of us. Mm -hmm. He was in management. He was one of these great management guys, but he wrote a letter saying, I'm leaving the company and I'm not leaving like most people do to go someplace else. Right. I'm leaving the company because I work 14 hours a day and I don't have time to think about what I really want to do. And so I'm not leaving to go to a different firm. I'm leaving because I got to figure out what I want to do with my life. And so I really like being a financial advisor. I didn't love being a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I thought about that. And, it, and it's funny because there were three or four of us that, that after he left. And by the way, it's funny because the phrase he used, he said, I think I have other mountains to climb. Right. And he climbed Mount Everest twice wow. after he left the company. It was wow. really neat. And I thought, I'm 40 years old. I have other mountains I want to climb. And so my goal at the time was to become a teacher and a high school track coach. So I did the stuff that would pay first, being a financial advisor, mm -hmm. and then sell my business and use that to do the thing that unfortunately doesn't pay. We could talk about teaching in America. <laughs> but uh, it, And so I went back to school and started taking classes. And while I was in shorts and a t-shirt, I had friends that said, hey, you know, you were on TV, I'm on TV, can you write my scripts? And they'd pay me a little bit of money to write their script. And then I had other friends that were advisors that said, you know, these newsletters, you know how to get them through compliance. Could you write my newsletter? Make it interesting, but make it go through compliance. So I started mm -hmm. doing that. Within eight months, I was making as much as a first-year teacher which is horrible, right, by the way. Right. First-year teachers should be paid far more than what I was doing. And I was really enjoying myself. My kids were in high school. So I started getting involved on the media end, and Stacking Benjamins was born from that. Don't forget, you moved into your mom's basement to be able to play for it all. 
favorite right. at all. <laughs> that is right. Mom, thank you very much. <laughs> if anybody so, doesn't know, the shtick on the show with uh, with Joe on Stacking Benjamins is that they do the show from their mom's basement. It's not true, but it's a funny shtick. What are you shtick. talking about? Because <laughs> we're too cheap to do it anywhere else. It's remarkable because that was my uh, my plan as far as Was the... to go into your mom's basement? <laughs> that too i live in florida we don't have basements we have spare bedrooms uh my plan was go and become a financial planner get rich and become financially independent and then i wanted to go and teach and i always thought as a backup plan that i would really enjoy teaching probably at the university level but maybe at the high school level yeah and so that was one of the things i just always been attracted to but i thought that's stupid i'm not going to go and spend all my years working for nothing trying to make it go i'll go make money first and then go teach and who knows maybe at this point i get to teach every day which is what i love and that's what i like and and my class that were teachers, what they kept telling me as I was telling them that I was getting out of the business, I was going to become a teacher, they said, you'll hate teaching. And not that I hate kids or I hate educating people. It's that I was going to be teaching to a test. I wasn't going to be teaching people what they really needed to know. I was going to make sure you could pass this test. And uh, and I did. And I had professors that, that year that I was in the teaching system that were telling me that, you know what, I don't think you're going to like this the way you thought you would. So, so you sold your practice, right? I did. You sold yes. your book. How did you come to terms with the fact that you were walking away, even though you were able to sell your book? Uh, how did you come to terms with the fact that you were walking away from millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars? Because if you did it at what age did you sell? Yeah, 40. 40 to 70? Yeah. 30 years of fees on a $65 million book that could have grown you know, multiple folds after that? How did you come to terms with that decision? It, it was Chris's message of, I have other mountains to climb. And I knew that that was a full-time job. It was more than a full-time job. You know, I was so worried about my client's money all the time. We would go on vacation and every day I had an hour to an hour and a half where my family would do stuff and I would still work because I was so worried about, about their money. And, um, and, and I was, you know, I'd have the market when the market went down in 2000 and then again in 2007, huge, ulcers. I mean, I, w- I would worry nonstop about what was going on. And, and I, I just had other mountains. I had other stuff I wanted to do. And I could wait till I was 70 to do that. Or I could stop right now and I could figure it out from there. And, um, and, and you know, unless Shirley MacLaine's right and, and we reincarnated, right? And I could do this again. I got one shot. Right. So at 40, while I have energy, let's go try out something different. Do you consider yourself financially independent? I do not. I am close, but we're not there. No. And I, and I definitely do stacking Benjamins for money. And I, and, and I think, and even if I were financially independent, I would do stacking Benjamins for money. Uh, just because of the fact that I, I like the scorecard. Right. You know, I like the challenge of let's see what this is really worth in the public. Right. And I think that many of the, most of the things I get very, concerned when people think do things not for money there are things i do not for money and there are plenty of worthwhile worthy things that are not going to have money associated with them but i get very concerned when people make an arbitrary distinction between worth doing and that's not for money and like the the fact that somehow because i'm not doing it for money makes it more worthwhile right money is a good indicator of value. It's not the only indicator. Right. And there are some types of value that will never be reimbursed by money, but it's a good indicator of the marketplace. And that's one of the things that frustrates me that people don't go in the marketplace and compete because the marketplace will reward those who are bringing value. That's what I'm interested in. If, if I can put on a good show, like Radical Personal Finance, right. if I can put on a good show, more people will listen. If I bring them value, then there'll be more value to me. Right? Zieg Ziegler. Right. If I give a lot of people what they want, I will get what I want. 
Absolutely. And uh, we take, and, and by the way, when I say I'm not financially independent, I want to tell you, I don't think I'm financially independent because I was a financial advisor and because I know how it works. There are plenty of people. We're at Podcast Movement mm-hmm. Conference. There are people who are entrepreneurs walking around here that tell you they're financially independent. They have a lot less money than I have. <laughs> and they say they're financially independent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know all the pitfalls and I worry all the time. Right. So I look at my net worth and I go, maybe... Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe, and we'll see how the coming decades work. <laughs> yes. That's one of the scary things. Is I, and so one of the things that I want to focus on with this conversation is talking about the perspective of financial advisor because the conversation we're having here, two former professional licensed financial advisors working in the trenches, being able to talk without the shadow of compliance threat <laughs> is unusual, and it's interesting because. I used to have a ton of confidence in the very simple formulas. I used to have just, oh, this is the way it is. It's very simple. It's going to work. If I just do this, then this is great. Stock market is always going to blah, 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 blah. It's all going to work. The more you learn, the less confidence sometimes you have. Sometimes you have more, but it's much more nuanced confidence because you know all of the holes in your argument. Do you have that same experience? Well, yeah. The joke about our show is that we're... I love your show because you teach your audience a lot of stuff. The joke on Stacking Benjamins is if we teach you anything ever, it's a huge mistake. (laughs) Our goal is surround sound, right? Um, And and, and we're joking about that. We teach sometimes, but that's not. Our goal is to be entertaining. uh, But still, we did a show recently that were the five dumbest rules of thumb ever. Really? What were were they? (laughs) Or what were a couple of them? Yeah. One is this. One is this, is this idea that saving 10% of your income is the right number. Right. Where the hell did that number come from? <laughs> stupid. Where did it, 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 10% says nothing. No, no matter if you're 62 years old and you just paid off your credit card debt last year, you just need to save 15% for retirement and everything's going to be fine. Right. Another one, <laughs> invest your age in bonds. Oh, I hate that one. What is that all about? I hate that one. That's that's my <laughs> least favorite. I don't understand that. Right. Yeah. So anyway, we do those. Uh, but 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 yeah, rules of thumb. You're right. They're far more nuanced. It's a you know an OG on our show said it said it right, which is that they're a great place to start. Right. But that's like diving into the pool. You got to go deeper right. than that. I do think rules of thumb are a great place to start, right. and they have huge value in that perspective. Uh, my favorite one I was is. The favorite example is if you give somebody something like a percentage of their income that they should own in cars. That's my favorite one. You know, 10% of your annual income in cars is my number. I stole from Sam at Financial Samurai. And I think that's great because it changes your perception. If you're starting with 10% of your savings, it might keep you, it might keep you from spending 100%. But what, but if you flip it, and what I love about the early retirement numbers, if you start with 50%, and that's what I'm going to teach my kids, you may, you may spend 50% of your dollars, but 10% goes into personal development. 10% 10% gets given away right off the top, and then 30% gets invested, 15% into working capital that you're going to actively manage and invest in a business, and 15% into other long-term passive investments, just in case you screw up your business that you still have something <laughs> right, to start right, over with. Right. But it's like, think about the difference if we change these rules of thumbs. The ones that tick me off are the budget numbers. You should spend 25% of your income on, or 30% of your income on housing. And you should more, spend oh. 15% on your car. And as like you run the numbers, and you're like, but wait a second. Second, who invented these numbers? I have a sneaking suspicion that there is a mortgage company and a car <laughs> financing company somewhere behind. Well, that. just the whole thing of renting is throwing money away. Right. <laughs> brought to you by the Mortgage Association and the National Association of Realtors. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> What's that all about? That's so, crazy. As a financial media pundit, you've achieved the vaunted position oh, of no. a pundit. 
Dave Ramsey and I, side by side. Exactly. Well, that's where I'm going. <laughs> Talk about your theory and philosophy about financial punditry. Uh, and you've, we've talked about this in depth as far as the different stages that people are at in their financial journey and who can be of service to them at various times. I think we make a big mistake that we get attached to a guru and then we stick with that guru for our entire life. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that if I'm a Dave Ramsey fan, th that I need to be a Dave Ramsey fan forever. I'm a Susie Orman fan. Well, then everything Susie says is right and some things are... And, and that, that drives me crazy. Right. Because I look at it, and I guess the best analogy from where I sit is the Apollo... Uh, the Apollo uh, moon program okay where you know they had these multi-stage rockets so they had different stages some people are on the launch pad of life mm -hmm. and I think there's nothing better for those people to hear than Susie Orman in, in one of the first chapters of her first book she talks about having respect for a dollar right. about putting your dollar bills all in order in your wallet because that 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 tactile thing of putting your money smoothing it out and putting it in your wallet and they're all the same is part of respect for a dollar. And I think that if you start there, that's a great place to start. And, and then uh, Dave Ramsey, live a cash lifestyle. Right. If you start from a cash lifestyle, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But there comes a point when, when you graduate and then you let that piece of the rocket go because you already used it, you right. already know that, and then you need a different rocket. So, and I'll give you an example. Then then maybe the second stage is people that just want a nice view of the earth. Like I have listeners to our show who write to me and they say, you know, you had this guy on and he was talking about, about going to Mars. You know, I don't want to go to Mars. I don't want to be... I love my job. I love my family. I just want to know that I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And for those people listening to like a David Bach or a, um, or a Rick Edelman, mm -hmm. which is funny because those two guys work together now. Really? But, but yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. David Bach got hired by Rick Edelman and now he's the VP of Edelman Interesting. Associates. How about okay. that? Huh? Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, but, but Rick Edelman, The Truth About Money, I love that book. He's because fantastic. It's, yeah. It, yeah. It's even handed. It says... You know, commission-based advisors are bad this way, but they're also good this way. Fee-only advisors good, and and I, he does that with everything. But for somebody that wants a well-rounded approach, hire a CFP, somebody that knows the six areas of financial planning, and you'll get a great view of the world. You'll be well off. You're never going to go to Mars that way, though, right? Because you don't go to Mars without extreme risk, right? And so then, when you exit the you know exit the my analogy's wearing thin but, <laughs> the stratosphere but, yeah but you get rid of that rocket and now you're on your way to mars right and now you're going to listen to people like robert kiyosaki mm -hmm. or you're going to listen to somebody like one of these uh property well robert kiyosaki's one of those guys the flip property right. places or or you know then you get into the jim kramer stuff right you now kramer's fine but he's going to mars right um so so pick your guru carefully i think i, I don't think there's any problem with gurus I think that I would always get, you get this when you were an advisor, somebody walk into your office, they need to be listening to Ramsey and they're listening to Kramer. Right. Right. Or you get somebody who's still stuck on Ramsey yeah. and you're like, yeah. dude, graduate. Exactly. Exactly. So do you think gurus should change their message? Because here's the thing. It's kind of funny. Like Dave Ramsey talking about the fact that his wife still uses cash when he goes for the groceries. When she goes to the groceries, I don't know, I assume he still does that years ago when I was a regular listener, he would talk about that. My wife still uses cash when she goes to the grocery store. Okay. Maybe she does. I don't think he would lie about that. But if she does, the only reason she does is simply so that he can say that on the radio without lying. Continuity of message. Exactly. So the question is, and again, all respect to Ramsey, should he adjust his message as his life stage adjusts or should he 
keep his message core because that's the audience that he's serving. I think that's the issue. The message I just gave your audience right. with the multi-stage rocket, it's, it's too complex. It's not a soundbite. Right. I think he has to keep the message simple, and he is a big enough audience base with that message that just pounding that message home is where, and, and you got to remember what Dave Ramsey It worked in it for, for me. It pounded it home for me when I was a skeptic and I was in college and I'm like, and I'm just getting beat with this message every day. Get out of debt, get out of debt, get out of debt. It made a huge difference in my life. And there are, I, would, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people for whom it's made a difference. I don't remember how biggest, I don't know how his big, biggest footprint is, but let's call it, there are a lot of people for whom he's made a big difference. Monster. Right. Yeah. No, it's got to be the same message the girls gave to me all the time. You have to, at some point, say this to your guru. You have to say, no, baby, it's not you, it's me. Right? <laughs> and girls would tell me that constantly. And you've got to say, hey, Dave Ramsey, it's not you. Your message is fine. It's me. i got to move on. Right. i got to do, do something different. The other thing, it's interesting. I've wanted to, I, I, don't, I haven't listened to any of his entrepreneur shows or his entree leadership brand. But I assume that's why he developed that brand is so that he could express that different message because I think he probably gets bored with it and so he's looking to express kind of that higher level leadership message that higher level business message and that's probably where he's trying to do it if, we, if you and I were sitting talking to him that's probably what he would say it's guess. gotta be yeah, yeah Dave call us and tell us what you yeah, think yeah please Dave I'm gonna, I'm gonna get him on the show I, Dave he's an amazing businessman and I'm just trying to copy him <laughs> that's all I'm doing <laughs> he's the role he's the role model but, but you know what if I, if I had something to do over my career at 47 years old Mm -hmm. The one thing I would have done when I was young, if people are young listening to this, I would, I would say this. I always, Josh, I always wanted to reinvent the wheel. Right. I always thought, you know what, there, there is, and there is value in looking at the spokes of the wheel and mm -hmm. understanding how the wheel is built. Right. But it's better to, to take the wheel for granted a little bit and build a car around it. Right. I would have had better mentors and I would have taken something like, you were talking about taking Dave Ramsey and doing more. I, I would have done that. I would have gotten way further than I got had I done that sooner. It's so valuable. And I want to talk to you a little bit about um, your experience with the Ameriprise because Ameriprise is a massive company in the, in the training of advisors. But I always noticed this with, uh, when I was a new rep with Northwestern Mutual. And one of the reasons that I chose Northwestern Mutual is because when I was researching the industry, they were regarded as having an excellent training program. And I wanted to learn how to sell well. And so I was looking for training. I didn't know if it was going to be a long-term fit or not. I knew I was going to do it for three years and I wanted the training. So when I came in and I studied the model, and they were t I was told we were trained under the Al Granham system, uh, who was a famous Northwestern life insurance agent for many years. And I was trained, do this process. And I just said, okay, do this process, you know, given the fact-finding form. And when I was in my first few days of training, there was a, a senior advisor that came in and he said, you all can be idiots, but if you'll just take this little paper document out in the field and you'll ask everybody all the questions that are printed on there and you fill them in, you'll open cases and you'll create financial plans and you'll be able to help people. And he says, you can be an idiot. And if you'll just do that, you'll be successful. So I believed him. You know, I just went and did what I was told. And over time, I never understood until I got my CFP, actually, I never understood what I had been doing for years that made a big difference for me. Mm. When I got my CFP, I, I memorized the language. I memorized my approach language. I had all, I just memorized all the scripts. It wasn't until I got my CFP that I understood, oh, that's why that's in there. We're defining the engagement. Now I put CFP terms on it. We're defining the engagement. 
But I've been doing that all along because I just followed my training. I watched other people that came in and they just didn't accept the system. Like, well, I know better than this. I'm going to make a better thing. It's like, you are stupid. If you wanted a different system, you should have gone and found a different company that had a different system. Don't be in this company and think that you should create a different system. If, you, if you're with the company that knocks on doors, you go knock on doors. Don't join the company that knocks on doors and say, I'm going to make cold calls. If you're with the company that does cold calls, don't go knock on doors. Like You pick your mentors and then follow their system until you're successful. And then when you're successful, think about tweaking it. I agree. And let me tell you what happened to me. My first year, I made $85,000. Great year for a first-year financial advisor, right. especially given what I told you at the open of the show, where yeah. I didn't know anything. I wasn't <laughs> going to use the word anything. Right. I knew less than anything. I, I, I just did what I was told. I made eighty-five grand. My second year, they took the, they took the, 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 the training wheels off, mm -hmm. and now I was on my own. And I decided I need to service my clients. <laughs> I didn't need to do all these marketing processes anymore, right? Indeed. I made like 20 grand. <laughs> My second year was horrible because I took all these systems and I threw them away because I knew better. Yeah, right. so I totally agree. I should have worked it longer. It's, it's endemic to financial advisors. Oh, I was doing this and it worked and I stopped. Why'd you stop? Because it was working. I made 40 calls a day and I had all these clients. So then I got busy and I stopped making calls. But in fairness to brand new financial advisors, let me tell you what was going on in my head. I have all these people that trusted me in my first year. Right. And I wanted to spend more time with them yeah, to yeah. give them the value I told them they were going to get. Right. Now, that's, that's step one. The other thing going on in my subconscious that I know is that marketing is hard. Right. And I didn't want to do it. Rejection. Right? Yeah. So I didn't want any of that. But, but in, in fairness to me, I really did want to take care of my clients. And um, the bad news is that's the – when I was a first-year advisor, I would have told you, Susie Orman always said, and I can't believe how often I'm quoting good things from Susie Orman because <laughs> there's a lot of bad things that I don't like. But, but, but Susie does say some – everybody says some good stuff. Susie said, make sure your advisor has 10 years of experience, right? Right. When I was a first-year advisor, that's a bunch of crap. Right. Because I work way harder than – I saw these 15-year advisors in my office. They leave at 4.30 in the afternoon. They come in at 9. I was there at 7. I was there at 7 at night. I would take care of you far better. Right. But then my second year, my third year, when I got in the weeds, I started to realize – uh, I, I can't juggle all this stuff. I know I'm a system. And it's not that I wasn't becoming knowledgeable. I didn't have the systems to actually do the right thing, which is why I tell people now, make sure your advisor has 10 years of experience. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. That's what we end up doing. And it, the, the problem is we just hope that a certain number of people won't hear that advice and they'll work with us and they'll trust us in the first few years because otherwise no one would ever get to the 10 years of experience. I remember my first client. They came in. So I made the cold calls to get mm -hmm. them into the office, okay, right? So that was your system. I sat there and, and you were my trainer uh -huh. and you were the guy that was knowledgeable. So you talked. I didn't say a word. Right. Yep. I took notes on how the thing was working. And at the end of the meeting, everybody got up and I shook hands and I said to Tom, my trainer, I said, what happened? He said, they're your first client. I'm like, no way. <laughs> they, no, they just hired you. He's like, no, no, no. They just hired you. Right. I'm like, wow. How dumb are they? Right. So you're from the perspective now as kind of an outside perspective. It's been a few years since you've been in the field. So you're looking at the financial industry. What thoughts do you have about the current state of the financial services industry? Wow. I think that anybody who is an asset gatherer is dead. I think that because funds are a commodity, uh, product is commodity, 
and the public is getting smarter, mostly because of podcasts are easier to get. Right. It's easier to get information about what the right thing to do is. There, the anybody that walks in and says, "Oh, you got this, uh, you got this money. I'm gonna put it in a Roth IRA. Hand me my money, or hand me your money, and I'll take care of it." Mm-hmm. I think those people are dead. I think I think good financial advisors, the ones that are going to be alive, are the people that say. You have all of this information available to you. I'm going to be your agent and I'm going to be the guy that tells you, no, 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 for your situation. I know your situation as well as you do. And you need to listen to this, 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 and this, and you need to ignore all this. Those people are going to rock. So robo advisors coming on board, they're going to eat asset gatherers lunch. There's no way they won't. Um, and we debate on our show about what the first downturn is going to do to robo advisors. You know, Mm -hmm. are they going to wash it? Are people going to trust the robot the second the market goes down? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. When the robots, uh, the second the market goes down and all of a sudden the robot's selling this fund and buying this one and selling this one, it's like, wow, everything's yeah. going down. Oh, I, I got a robot in charge. Of, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> right? It'll but be still, interesting to watch. But still, I think it beats the asset gatherer because you and I know these people. They, they come into your living room. They give you a good song and dance. They sell you a fund. Right. And then three years later, you still, you see their name on the statement, but you don't talk to them. Right. That, that dude's dead. That right. woman's dead. Yeah. I agree. Um, it's going to take a while because one of the challenges I've noticed is that those of us, every listener of my show or your show, they're weirdos. They're tuned in. And it's remarkable how many people aren't tuned in to what's going on. It's remarkable to me. <laughs> the thing I always observed as an advisor, sometimes I couldn't believe that somebody trusted me with as little due diligence as they did on me. And I always tried to be trustworthy and make sure that I shared with them. And so I always tried to, number one, be trustworthy. Number two, demonstrate my trustworthiness. And so I recognized that they were trusting me. And it's, a, it's an honor to be trusted. But still, sometimes I think, wait a second. Don't you want to ask a few more questions? Yes. Like, don't you want to do something? But I'm many like, please people, ask me this. Yeah. Here are the things you should be asking me. I wish if I had, you know, for, I was six years in, so I never got to the place of being a senior advisor where I had the time to write the book, but I wanted to write the book of here are the questions that you should ask your advisor in advance. And here's what, so ask me these, like, no, here, lesson number one from your financial advisor. You're stupid to hire me without asking me this. So ask me this and listen to my answer. And then I'll go ahead and and respond with you. (laughs) That's fabulous. It's, it's just, you know, we make big decisions and uh, I don't know. I'm excited because the press I see is towards financial advice, which is what we desperately need, and a way of asset management. And that's the shift. Now, unfortunately, I just don't think consumers and customers and clients are perceiving that. Right. I can't believe it when somebody asks me about returns these days. And I'm saying, like, when have I ever told you to ask me about returns? Like, don't you... Don't you read anything about mutual fund returns? Don't you have any idea about how these things work? And they don't. They're still saying, you know, people, uh, people still come to me and just friends and acquaintances and they find out I was, a, you know, I, I'm in the financial world. They say, well, what's going to be great next year? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> can I beat my head on this mic? <laughs> exactly. I don't know. There's too much padding for it. To <laughs> That's also a shift. Is it away from the financial advisor as I know what's going on in the market, right? Right. I remember when I was an early financial advisor, I was taught to tell my clients a story right. about here's where the market's at now and here's where we think it's going. Right. And there's only one or two things that could happen. Either I'm right, which is <laughs> lucky, 
or I'm unlucky. And then I, Rick Edelman tells a great story and maybe I'll tell it about this, about this guy that was a great marketer, uh, the stockbroker. He recommended two stocks and he had an audience of, of 4,000 people. And he, and, he, and he, to half of them, he said, well, actually it was one stock. We'll say it's Disney. Half of them, he said, you know what? In the next month, Disney's going to go up. The other half, he said, Disney's going to go down. And then when it went the, when it went whichever way it went, he cut it in half, right? The half he was right with. And he wrote them a second note a month later that said, Hey, you didn't respond to me. And I was right on with this one. I'm going to give you another stock, uh, uh, General Motors going to go up in the next month and half of it going to go down. So now it's only, you know, for, for a thousand people, it's right. A thousand people, it's wrong. And then finally he gets to the point after four of these, he has 250 people and he's like, you must be a moron. I've made four right calls in a row, right? I mean, these four awesome calls and you're still not calling me. What's your problem? And he, but that guy and those people exist. Yeah. yeah. They're going nowhere. I mean, they're because a great financial advisor is the person that tells you, I don't know, I don't know where the future's headed, but, but my job's to be your, your, your shepherd right. and to tell you, this is how you keep your sheep shaped. And, and, and by the way, I love the shepherd analogy because of the fact that they're not my sheep, they're your sheep. Right. And, and the advisor that says, no, 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 they're my sheep. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of everything. You shouldn't hire that person. Right. Yeah, it's the most liberating thing in the world as a financial advisor when you learn to say, I don't know. Right. took me a little while to say it. I was always comfortable with saying it uh, when I was uh, – I was always comfortable saying it about investment prognostication because before I was an advisor, I would – I knew enough to know, I don't, I don't know, stock market up, down, <laughs> I don't know. But I was uncomfortable saying it with regard to financial planning in the first few years. And then what was funny, the more I learned, the more comfortable I was saying, I don't know. And yeah. so today, like theoretically, my business card says I should know what I'm talking about a little bit with regard to, uh, to financial planning. Maybe a touch. Maybe. But today, it's the easiest thing in the world for me to say, I don't know. I don't have a clue about that question. But I can get the answer. And for well, that's me, the thing. You ask a 25-year-old, they know, and, and sorry, 25-year-olds, but you ask a 25-year-old, they know everything. <laughs> right. And then you ask a 50-year-old, and they're like, I don't know crap. Right. Like, the older you get, the more you know you don't know. <laughs> exactly. Like, I don't know. That's, it. That's, yeah. that's my experience so far. For me, this is where the financial advisor really adds the value. Because in the world that we live in, it's so complex. It's so many moving parts. And I, I frankly, I can't conceive of how somebody can get through it without somebody in their corner right I, I just don't see it the key is isn't whether you know or not it's that you know where to look right right so if i come to you and i say do you know this if i'm a good financial advisor i'll say no but i know where to look and i can get that answer far more quickly than you can right and that's where you would value like an agent you know like a sports agent for if, if you look at yourself as if you're a pro athlete Right. And, and I love this. Look at yourself as a pro athlete. Your agent should be the person that can tell you, sign that contract, don't sign that. Watch out for this guy. He's a sketchy, yeah. you know, watch out for that. Uh, stay away. Hey, you waking up on time? You still working out? You doing the, it, the more your person's an agent, I think the better off, the better off you're going to be. And it always, it, it, it does frustrate me when people say, I don't trust advisors because when I got to your 10 through 16 of my career. I sold it at year 16. Um, I was working with many people with millions and millions of dollars, right? With, with uh, my biggest client had $3 million. Mm -hmm. I probably worked with 
uh, six millionaires. Um, but they all had advisors. My richest clients had advisors. And my young clients, because I had clients that hadn't yet established themselves, they were young, mm -hmm. aggressively charging people. The people that were making moves quickly, they all had advisors. And it's funny because I think some people learn the wrong lesson. They're like, oh, I heard about sketchy advisors, so I just don't have advisors. Mm -hmm. It's not that. It's stay away from the sketchy ones and find better mentors, right. find better advisors, and you're going to go faster. Yeah. And that's <laughs> my secret agenda with Radical Personal Finance. Shine the light on the industry and let people choose. Find out what a good advisor sounds like. Find out what a bad advisor sounds like and find out what people are doing and find someone that you can trust. I can't see, like when you think about coaches, uh, the, the life coaching industry is growing up and it's funny, I feel bad for them with that word because it's such a fluffy word. <laughs> I'm a life coach. But realistically, think about it. <laughs> think about if every single month I had somebody that called me and said, Joshua, how are you doing? And actually took time and I'm paying them to listen to me and to ask me, are you doing these things? How effective are you towards your goals? How you know, are you working? Are you doing these things? Like, just like the agent metaphor. Think about how different over the course of time that trajectory is. And it takes time. I think with an advisor, you're probably in the, in the, you're in the red in the beginning. If you think about the fees that you pay, whether you're paying a planning fee. There's no possible way, I think, let's say you pay a thousand bucks for a planning fee and you have a competent planner. Can that planner guarantee you that in the first week you're going to recoup more, you recoup your thousand bucks? I don't think you can guarantee it. There might be some tricks. There might be some little things that you can do, open this account, things like that. I think I could, I think I could in general save most people, you know, upper level incomes. I think I could save most people a few thousand bucks just with a, an hour-long conversation and a review of everything, and some ideas will come out of that. But you can't guarantee that necessarily in the first few weeks. But over the course of months and over the course of years and then avoiding the big mistakes, for me, I struggled with how to clarify my worth as an advisor until I started reading Nick Murray's books. <laughs> and when I started reading Nick Murray's books, and he's big, he's a former advisor, he's in his 70s, and he talks about essentially your role as an advisor in helping your clients avoid big mistakes, talking them off the wall. And when and he, he's, and he's slightly gruff. He's very... <laughs> that's he a polite way to put it. He doesn't have a good bedside manner. Yeah, that's a polite way to say it. But, but he also says the clients don't need the bedside manner. They need to be told the truth. Right. And because they won't get it. Right. And, and that set me free when I realized financially the impact in a very few couple of months, you know, that realistically, I'm not going to bring you much value necessarily on a month to month basis, especially if I'm not doing more of the coaching model. I think more advisors should be doing the coaching model, but most advisors aren't going to do that. They're not going to coach you on yeah. your career. They're not going to, I think they should. But they're not going to do it. They're, they're working that. But even if only the only thing I accomplished was to talk you off the wall in the times that uh, you needed to be talked off the wall, that has a huge value. I got lucky. I, I gave speeches for the number one advisor at Ameriprise, and he was phenomenal. I learned more about systems from him, but I also learned about, the, about why he was number one and why so many rich clients, wealthy clients, successful clients... Uh, successful financially clients right. uh, uh, dealt with him was because when he would talk to new potential clients, he'd say, I have two jobs. Number one job is to find ways to make you money that you might not know about. 
More than that, it's even to leverage your primary income stream and make sure that you use that more to your advantage. So you'd see these people that are great at real estate. His job was to make sure you made as much run money at real estate as possible, but then to diversify your portfolio mm-hmm. so that you don't get sunk. Which language. was number two. Number two was everybody has blind spots. I actually make more money for you helping you get rid of your blind spots than I do helping you make money. You'll make money on your own. The bad news is, is there's going to be a blind spot that hits you, and my job's to make sure that never happens. And he said, sometimes, frankly, it's hard for me to prove to you that I protected you from that blind spot because it's my job to make sure that you don't feel it. Right. And it was amazing. Yeah. It, but, but the better thing was he did it. And the reason he did it was he had these sheets that he used, just to give you an idea of his yeah. process, of every single blind spot he'd ever seen in his 32-year career at that time. And, and he would go down through their whole case. Have, I, have they looked at this? Have they looked at that? And that checklist. That's fantastic. Oh, the checklist was amazing. I took the checklist. We call it our Sherlock Holmes sheet. And, uh, Do you publish that on Stacking it, Benjamins? No, we publish it in our class. Okay. But we have a class called Stacking nice. the Benjamins. Good plug, good plug. I like it. I good didn't mean to do that. that. <laughs> I didn't been, mean to do that. That's, that's called a pro. That's, yeah, that's, we, <laughs> did, we didn't mean to do that. So perfect uh, segue. I'm turning red, aren't I? <laughs> you are. Yeah, I didn't mean perfect to Perfect segue. Um, show, resources, class, Plug yes. it and because uh, and people can go over and gain from your perspective. With what no, you're doing well, you know measures. what? Uh, thanks again for having me. This is, I, I love this. This is, I could talk about this stuff all day. Yeah. So could you, which is why <laughs> yeah, we shocking, love right? <laughs> yeah. But, but, but uh, so Stacking Benjamins, we have a show three times a week. It's the light side of personal finance. My goal when I created it, I had not heard a show that wasn't either in depth as your show mm-hmm. or was, uh, had a guru attached like Dave Ramsey's right, show. Right. I wanted car talk right? because I've listened to podcasts since 2005. I've, I'm one of the early podcast listener guys. Mm-hmm. I'm a runner. And, um, and I'm like, you know, I just want car talk. I want this light thing. And I have ADD and I want it to be magazine style. So we don't try to teach anything. We're just surround sound. And in fact, it's funny when I read reviews of your show, they say, finally, there's a show that goes into depth uh-huh. and does it. That, that that reviewer, if you're listening to this, you'll hate my show. <laughs> don't, don't listen to this talking about Yeah, because we don't go deep at all. Right. We, we have you'll you'll have nine or ten different things. We go over the headlines. We'll have the you know some big guests on. We've had Rick Edelman on. We've had Dave, David Bach on. We've had great uh, artistic people that you don't think you're going to learn from. We had the guy that broke the Cannonball Run record on. Because talk about planning. Yeah. So the, the Cannonball Run record is driving illegally from New York to L.A. faster <laughs> than anybody ever has. But they didn't do that overnight. It right. was a plan. And it, and it was a financial plan. I mean, they had to figure out how to outfit this Mercedes with extra gas tanks when they were going to pee. It was, it wow. was so we try to do goofy stuff like that, too. That's awesome. I, yeah. So. That's awesome. You guys switched to three times a week. What was the... You were doing fewer shows before. Yes. We, so we had... Um, I wanted to be... Part of what I liked about the show was, was the same thing I liked about David Letterman versus mm-hmm. Jay Leno back in the day. Okay. Jay Leno always had big established stars on. Jay... Uh, David Letterman would have these bands on you'd never heard of before and these people with quirky stuff you've never had before. And we started off the show with those people. But then as we got a bigger audience, people like Rick Edelman said, hey, I'd love to be on your show. But I didn't want Rick Edelman to crowd out the quirky idea. So we created 
more shows so that I could still have. We have a show on Friday that's a shorter show called The Short Stack. It's an idea so good, mom wanted us to give it a special show all its own. <laughs> and that's for that quirky thing right. that you have never heard of before. That's what I've been struggling with, Radical Personal Finance, to figure out the right schedule because I've been working to kind of reduce the shows a little bit because I'm lacking some of the depth that I want to create. And yet the problem with reducing it is which direction do I go? I like experts, but frankly, experts are impenetrable for some people. They might be expert at their philosophy, but it's hard to relate. So sometimes I always love Jim Rohn used to talk about uh, this perspective. He'd say, you know, you should talk to rich people and you should learn from them. But wouldn't it be great if you could find someone who was a total failure and say, Dude, you are just an abject failure in every part of life. Tell me everything that you do, please, carefully, everything that you do, so I know not what to do. <laughs> and I just think, like, wouldn't it be great if I could interview a failure and, <laughs> and do that? I don't quite know how to request that interview. <laughs> what is <laughs> Hey, dude, you're a loser. Would you be on my show? Exactly. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> but I could at least get close to that by finding average people that are peers that yeah. maybe just experiencing some of the same things because we all have some valuable life experience to share yeah. and it's helpful sometimes you know not every show i can't do five days of deep content you know there's got to be some deep content and there's got to be some some breaks and so that's what i've been struggling with so i, I that's a, i'm glad you guys are doing that i and, couldn't uh, do five days of farnoosh tarabi who you and i like yeah nice nice woman great show i could she's seven days a week man yeah. i can't do it yeah I'm with you. Well, Joe, thanks for coming on, man. I appreciate thanks it. Thanks a ton, dude. So you can post in the comments on today's show whether you actually learned something or not. But in any, in any case, go and check out Joe's show. He and uh, OG, the faceless, unidentified financial advisor. One of these days he's going to get caught for that. But <laughs> for right now, I guess they've figured it out uh, how to do it. I, I thought about when I was a financial advisor wanting to do a podcast, I thought about doing it anonymously, uh, but I didn't choose to do it. But so far, it's worked for them. Uh, but go ahead and check out Stacking Benjamins. Uh, some of you may enjoy that. It's a very different style from Radical Personal Finance, but some of you may really enjoy uh, Joe's show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, a couple of quick announcements here. As I'm doing interviews here over the next couple of days, if I miss a day because of the travel schedule, uh, to, uh, next week I'll be in Charlotte, North Carolina. So if I miss a day on a show or you don't have anything to listen to, always remember that there's a massive archive of content. And the way that Radical Personal Finance is designed, I don't. I try very hard not to repeat con, uh, concepts. So if you haven't gone back and listened through the archives, uh, I warn you, some of it's a little bit rougher as I've gotten my legs under me as a broadcaster. But there is some good content, and I try not to repeat uh, topics. So if you want to go back and listen to some of the technical shows, those topics will not be repeated in the future unless I really feel that I've messed it up big time and I really have got to do something different. So uh, also, if you just don't enjoy interview shows, if you're one of those who prefers the technical content, go back and check the archives. Uh, there should be plenty. I mean, there's hundreds of hours of probably about 500 hours of content there uh, ready for you and waiting. Uh, otherwise, uh, look forward to another, a few more interviews coming out next week. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come by and see me. I will be speaking at the XYPN conference, Financial Planning Conference. I'll be giving a talk entitled How Financial Advisors Can Help Their Clients Get a 27% Annualized Return on Their Investments. Uh, for those of you who listen to the show, that's the 1,000% rule. Uh, also, I will be speaking at the FinCon conference as part of a panel presentation on monetizing a podcast. And that brings me to the last and final point. The only reason that I'm speaking at FinCon is because y'all are awesome. 
and you've actually helped me to monetize this show through the Patreon page. Thank you to the, as of today, 226 of you who support Radical Personal Finance financially. If you gain any value or benefit from Radical Personal Finance, especially if it has a financial impact on your life, please consider becoming a patron of the show. I'd love to get that number to 250 by the end of September. That means I need 24 more of you to do it this month. So go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Cheers, y'all.